How's that? Good morning, everybody. Aren't you glad to be here? I'm excited about being here. Man, it's a great day to be here. Uh, you may not realize it, but uh, some of you that's more into music and sound, these are our new speakers. How many like the new sound? Some of you don't even realize that, right? These up here, community speakers, they're, uh, they're, well, they've served their time, and they have done well, but this sound here is really neat. So, well, I didn't even notice a difference. I bet you there's some that did notice a difference, uh, but it's good to be here. Um, if you have the, the handout on the back of it is uh, a little bit of what I'm going to be sharing this morning on before and after one of the trends we are, are seeing in reality television, I put reality television, um, fixer upper. Some people love this stuff. I mean, some people love this stuff. And they envision their kitchen one day looking like that kitchen, right? Anybody, don't, don't raise your hand. Please don't raise your hand. And we think this is reality television. I'm just going to, you know, tell on myself a little bit because... Brenda loves me to give commentary when she's watching this. And the, pro and the problem with me is I, I'm in commentary all the time, no matter what's on television. <laughs> Kelly says, do you have to have an opinion about everything? I said, yes, really, I, I really do have to have an opinion about everything. But I tell her, I says, you know, uh, there, this is all scripted. There, there's a camera right there in front of them. They're acting like there's no camera there, but they know there's a camera there, and they've practiced this. This is not real. This is all plastic you know this is they, they and then plus you have the editing process that there's no telling how much of the footage gets put on the the film floor as they used to say and i said so this all practice is all artificial but the um, the results are amazing they show uh you know and these guys these two guys that are they twins these guys that whatever um and they're in there with their hammers and their sledgehammer. And I said, well, they probably handed that thing off to somebody else as soon as the camera crew like, hey, you got in the picture. So that's, you know, I'm, I'm just like, it's not real. None of this is, it's real, but it's not real. Are you following me? I don't know why I have such a thing about that. But you cannot, you cannot argue with the results. And I do wish they could do something with our kitchen like that. And Brenda does too, like that need a kitchen like that it's the before and after though it's like you see this thing before and you see it after and, and it's really utterly amazing well that's what I want to I'm not going to talk about fixer uppers this morning it's just like a an intro how's that but there's always a before and after if you think about it there's always a before and after there was a before today and there's going to be after today we hope but even if we expire before tomorrow, there's always an after. There's always going to be a before and an after. There's a before you were born and there's an after you were born. There was a, a time in your life before you were married and there's a time now after you're married. Hallelujah. <laughs> One of my prayers was, Lord, please delay your rapture. Whether anybody believes in that or not, I believe in it. 
I said, I would like to get married and have kids. And man, has he answered that prayer. And grandkids. And I said, that's a pretty good answer to prayer. But it's like in my mind, I just wanted to have a family. I grew up in a loving family. I said, this is what I want. And, and uh, we didn't have six kids like my parents did because I was told we're going to limit it to two. So that's, that's the way that worked. <laughs> there are some people that can absolutely talk about before salvation and after salvation, right? Are you among those? I think I heard Billy Graham's daughter say that she cannot remember not being saved. And I thought, well, she must have been born Presbyterian. Already elect. I had a, our, our pediatrician would, would tell his Presbyterian background, he, and he became this crazy charismatic. He says, I was Presbyterian. I was born saved. But most of us can remember the moment where we experienced true, genuine salvation. Was there a difference between that day and the day before? And when children experience salvation, there's some people that kind of like, well, you know, they just kind of by osmosis in a church family and they just kind of like grow into being saved, right? But I do believe that all of them have that encounter with the Lord that's transformational. Being born of God, born of the Holy Spirit, regenerated, there's, a, there's no explanation for it other than it's a miracle that God does in your life. It's not saying a prayer or signing a card. It's this encounter with Jesus that changes you. Even if you were kind of like a pretty good person before, that still makes the song that saved a wretch like me relevant. Because the before and after is so different. It's like I was a... You know, like I remember one Denny Duran who said he got saved at the age of five and the Lord delivered him from stealing cookies out of the cookie jar. He would have become a life of crime if he had not gotten saved at the five years of age because he was already practicing theft. Well, I don't know how serious he was about that, but he did have enough awareness that there was something different in his life. Well, there's the before the arrival of Jesus and the after he appeared as a baby in a manger, right? Everything changed. Will you say you agree with that? Everything changed. Before Christ, after he arrived, there was before he was 30, which we don't, we don't know hardly anything about that. There's this little 12, when he's 12 years of age, we have this little snippet of his life between his birth and when he was launched at the age of 30 into ministry, this is like these forgotten years. Nobody, I know they made a movie about that as a child Messiah, but, you know, that's using a lot of uh, literary liberty, I guess you could say. But after he was 30, was there a big difference in him before he was launched into ministry and after he was launched into ministry? Absolutely. And there was a major difference before the Last Supper and after the Last Supper, right? These disciples, these 12 men that sat at that table that night, if we could hear their stories, their personal stories, if, if we could just listen to what they would say, those last hours with Jesus, 
especially after the supper ended and he was arrested. I think Judas Iscariot would tell us of the disastrous decisions he had made and that he wished he had those decisions over. But I also believe the other 11 men sitting around that table would tell you similar stories, not to the degree of Judas Iscariot, but all of them would express in some way the regret that they didn't stick up for their Messiah, that all of them abandoned him. And probably no one is a better example as to what happened there than Simon Peter. Simon Peter could tell us that he was so convinced that he wouldn't melt under the pressure. He promised Jesus among all those other, I don't know what the rest of them thought about him, but he really kind of put them, threw them under the bus. He says, if all the rest of them give up on you, I'm not going to give up on you. Isn't that what he said? If all the rest of these guys are not willing to lay down their life for you, I'm going to be the one that will jump in front of the train for you. Even if the rest of them, and he didn't even know his own heart, he didn't realize the strength that was in his life that Jesus saw. He didn't see the strength that was in his life, but Jesus saw it, and Jesus loved that man. He told him, he said, I'm, I'm going to pray for you. After you bomb out, I'm going to pray for you, and after you're restored, you're going to be a major help to these other guys. But he said, Peter, you will deny me three times tonight. You will do that. I, I know that I see a weakness in you that you don't see in yourself. You think that you can handle every situation, but you're not going to handle this one very well. It wasn't like he was preordained to crash. The Lord saw something in him that he didn't see in himself. He never thought in his, he was loyal to a fault, and he never, it never came to his mind that the one that he had been with for three years, that he would not ever do that. He would not, have any of you ever done something and you're like, I don't know why in the world I did that. What was I thinking? What was, what, what happened to me? And I'm, I'm sure that when all of that kind of caved in on him and he broke, he was broken, he went away in tears. And it all comes back to one sentence I'm going to take you in John chapter 16. One statement that Jesus said to these men sitting around the table that makes all the difference in the world before and after. It is the ultimate before and after. Because Jesus really clearly says that something is going to happen that's going to be a demarcation in their life, a definite before and after. Now, he had said a lot of things, and even in chapter 14, he says, uh, he said things that just kind of broke their heart. He, he was like, I don't want you to be this way. I don't want you to be grieving over this. I'm going to prepare a place for you. But in this long dialogue, it's really a monologue that he has in the upper room. Chapter 16 is the last part of what he's going to say to him before he prays for him. And in verse 7, this is, a, this is the phrase, I want, the verse I want to take you to. But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate, the helper, the Holy Spirit 
will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. One translation puts it this way. Yet it is the truth that I am telling you. It is to your advantage that I go away. The King James says expedient, and that's the way this word is usually and translated in the King James. It's expedient. It's, it's good for you. This is going to be a good thing for you. And I think they would say, okay, that's good that you're going to send the advocate, the, the Holy Spirit, but it's not good that it's going to require what? You leaving. We, we can't figure out how it's going to help us that you're going to leave us. We don't see that as a positive. And yet, he's making it clear. He said, I am leaving you. There, there's no doubt about this. I am not going to stay here. He said, I'm going back to the one who sent me here in the first place. He makes that a definitive statement to them. He does not want them to misread him. He is telling them absolutely I'm just here now on a temporary basis. I will leave you on a permanent basis as far as his physical presence. And he says, this is good for you. This is a good thing. It's to your advantage. It's, it's going to be because if I don't leave you, something's not going to happen. And that something is that the advocate, the Holy Spirit, will not come. But if I leave you, this is how this statement finishes. If I leave you, I will send him to you. Now, think about this with me. This is, this is talking to men that he had discipled for three-plus years. And I, I'm not talking about, like, having a class Monday, Wednesday, and Friday and having a class Thursday, Tuesday, and Thursday evening or a weekend class or distant learning. This is like every day they're with him. Every day, every day, seven days a week. They're traveling they're doing ministry, they're praying, and he's teaching them, he's training them. He's the intellectual side. Let me ask you this. Do you think that they lacked at all in the intellectual side of what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus? Do you think that intellectually they got as much as they could have gotten those three years? Was it enough? Was it enough? Undoubtedly, it wasn't. So what is he saying? I mean, I've got some notes there, and I, might, I may touch on these the way it's in the handout, or I may not, so here we go. There's an intellectual side of faith, but there's also an experiential side of faith. And Peter had as much intellectual... And you know what? Peter was so convinced that I'm going to stay true to my promise to him that I'm willing to die for him if the rest of these guys are losers. Because as soon as they showed up to arrest Jesus, Peter tried to keep his promise, did he not? He was, he was packing a knife. And he pulled it out, and he went to swing. And he's a fisherman. He's not in Royal Rangers and FCF, and he's been throwing knives for practice. He, he swings at one of the men coming to, 
arrest Jesus, and he cuts his ear off. He's not that good with the knife. And Jesus told him, put your knife up. That's not what we're about here. And he reaches down, picks Marcus's ear up, puts it back on the side of his head, and said, there. There you go. You know, I don't, I don't know about Marcus's life. I would, I would love to have a conversation. I think he might have been one of those people that got saved. Or he goes home that night. I, I, I just have all these. He goes home. After being there, she says, what's the blood on your shoulder? Well, I got my ear cut off tonight. Well, your ear looks okay. Yeah, the guy I arrested healed it. I mean, I don't know how those people cannot become Christians. I don't know. But this is Peter. He, he is in it to the end, and he still doesn't know how weak he is. And all this intellectual side that he got was not enough because he crashed and burned right after that. He had not experienced what he needed to experience to go to take the intellectual side that Jesus had taught him and the rest of these men. They needed something else to make that matter, right? And he said, this is why I'm leaving you. Now, we explain this. We, we explain this. Uh, you know, I, I've explained this. I think all of us have tried to explain this, why it's good, because Jesus is one person and the Holy Spirit is not limited to a physical body and and he would, and there's something else about this. There's something else about this. Because Jesus, when he left, he says, I'm going to be with you always, even to the end of the age. But he says, my presence with you is going to be through the medium of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to come and pick up where I leave off, and it's going to be much, much, much better for you. And there's nobody that's a better model of that than Simon Peter. Because you think about that night he caved. He caved because a servant girl, you read it, it's all in the, all four Gospels. A servant girl, he's, and I think he's trying, he's there, he's trying to live up to his promise, Lord, I'm, I'm in it. And he follows the arrest group, the soldiers that arrested Jesus. He followed them to Caiaphas' quarters where Jesus was going to be interrogated, and he's sitting, he's actually outside. He is kind of like trying to do this. He's trying to hang in there, and he's warming himself by a fire, and some little girl recognizes him and says, you're one of them. He says, oh, no, no, I'm, I don't know the guy. And I think just for that moment, he, uh, his weakness kicks in. And he says, no, I, I, don't, I, don't, know, I don't know him. And two more times, and he was getting so paranoid about, I, I, I don't know if I should use the word, I, I'm just telling you, he got, he got so distraught of trying to convince these people that he, was, he didn't have any connection with Jesus. He, he calls for curses to come upon himself. He's not cussing like people in the South. <laughs> that's not when it says with curses, you know, that's not, you know, that's not never proper. But he's, he's calling on curses to be on him to try to convince them that he absolutely does not know that man. And he is not awakened out of all of that until that rooster crows. And in one translation, one of the gospel writers said that Jesus was close enough to make eye contact with him when that happened and that Peter walked out of there a broken, weeping, defeated man. But the next time you see Peter in prominence, 
And, and, and you can also say Jesus over a 40-day period appeared to them in a resurrected state, right? Handful of experiences. Not, this is not like once every other day he appeared to them. It's just a handful of places that the Bible says he appeared to them. And yet, even though they saw him, it's kind of odd that even one of the gospel writers says they still didn't believe it, that he appeared and then he disappeared. And they still like, did we just see what we thought we saw? Or? And on one occasion, I believe, the, I believe people who have spoken to this is correct. Peter, I think, was going to go back to his old profession, to what he knew to do good. He was a fisherman by trade. And so up in Galilee, he says, hey, we know where the fish are, and I'm going to go fishing. Anybody with me? And several other disciples went with him, and they fished all night didn't catch anything. And you remember the story. It's kind of like Peter is struggling with all this. He's still not the man that God wants him to be, that Jesus wants him to be. But he becomes that man after one event that happens, right? Acts 2. And when the Spirit of God moved into that upper room, 120 people, all 11 other disciples was there, and they voted in a replacement for Judas. The mother of Jesus is in there. There was a number of, a few people mentioned by name, but 120 people, and all of them, every one of them, without an exception, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, and all of them began to speak languages they did not know. And the people out in the street, the people in the street was, uh, they just stopped. The crowded street outside stopped when they heard all these people speaking. You know, I, I think if you had a bunch of people speaking in different languages that you could pick out English. It's like, oh, there's someone. It's kind of like when I was in Russia. I, I just longed for someone to speak in English other than my interpreter, instead of me going next door to buy something to eat and pointing at that. And then I heard English in the hallway of my motel, hotel. I ran out in the hallway, look, where are they? And there was two couples down the hallway, and I ran down there, I thought, hey, where y'all from? Michigan and Florida? What's what is what's going on? You know, can I be your friend? You know, and it's like hallelujah, and and we was talking. I had a sinus infection. It's not good to be in Russia with a sinus infection when their recipes for curing you is not good. I was eating things and drinking things. I was like, whoa, this is something not good. Berries and lemon and stuff, and it was not working. And one of them had sinus medicine. Oh. Hallelujah. <laughs> I think I could, th I think I could have, if a hundred people were speaking in different languages, I could pick out the one speaking English. And that's what happened. And the next time you see Peter, he is an after man. He is totally different than the man at that fire that a little girl or young girl or teenage girl intimidated him. And he stands up when they are making fun of him. All of a sudden, they said, these people are drunk. 
That's what's wrong with them. They, they started jeering at them. They started making fun of them. And the next thing you read in verse 14, it says that Peter stood up with the 11. This is Acts 2, 14. Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice. <laughs> the guy didn't want to be noticed at a campfire less than two months earlier and refused to acknowledge that he even knew Jesus. He stands up in front of this massive crowd outside this building and he said, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain to you, listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk. They, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. You know, for some people that doesn't mean anything. But maybe in their culture, no, nobody got drunk at 9 o'clock in the morning. He says, this is the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. And he proceeded to preach a message under the power of the Holy Spirit. And when he finished that message, he closed it out with this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. He probably hurt some of them's feelings. Isn't it strange how an offensive culture we have today? I used to say back when they kicked prayer out of school because Madeline Murray O'Hara was offended that her kid was having to listen to a prayer, and that's how prayer got kicked out of school. I thought, for the first time in my life, I think we have a constitutional right in the Constitution to not be offended. Now, do you remember any amendment to the Constitution that says you have a right not to be offended? We are in a baby state. We are in an offensive state. You can't even call on some university campuses and refer to a him or her. You have to have Zeb or Beb or Leb or 15 different designations. And the University of Michigan, I think, has 15 designations that's proper to refer to not him or her, but uh, Zeb or Leb. Or, and if you don't do that, you are offending them, and it will cost you your job. I think he just might have offended some of these people, but it, they weren't offended. They were convicted. They were cut to the heart, it says. Why were they cut to the heart? Because the Holy Spirit was in the words that he said. Because the Holy Spirit was in him. And what he preached was not his words. This was not a persuasive message. This was a message birthed out of the Holy Spirit. And God help us to think that we can learn evangelism explosion and techniques of evangelism, and that's what leads people to salvation when all of the study in the world will not work without the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that generates conviction. And that's, that's the next words in John 16. For he will convince the world, convince the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Their hearts were pierced through. They were convicted. It's one thing to read the Bible and to memorize the Bible. It's another thing to live that out in the power of the Holy Spirit. How about you? Are you at a point of before and after? Are you at a 
place of before and after. Maybe I should say that. How many of you are ready for an after? What you have had and what you have now, there's a yearning, there's a hunger in your heart for an after, for a new wave of the Holy Spirit. Do you want something permanent in your life? I've asked Brenda some questions over the last few days. She's probably thinking, what is wrong with you? About how is God is going to move in the next great move? How is that going to look? Where is the hunger of people? I was raised by parents. Now, I didn't think, I, I used to think 68 was old until I got to 68. I'm not old. I can still probably sh outshoot free throws everybody in this room except maybe for a couple of people. I will hang on to at least some of my talent, hopefully. But I wonder, I wonder what is next for us? What is next for you? Because the generation that I grew up under, the generation that's my age now, the generation I grew up under at that point was an altar people. They were intercessors. They were on their faces before God. They had prayer meetings. And my mom would camp in her bedroom, and, and mainly because of my brother. <laughs> she would camp in there and pray for extended periods of time. We could hear her crying out to God, praying in the Spirit, Believing God until she got peace that my brother's life was going to be spared. It was, and I wonder, where is that culture? It's almost like Elisha taking Elijah's mantle and wanting to see if it still worked. I want to tell you, that culture of prayer still works if we'll take it. If we'll take hold of the mantle of God, the endowment of power from on high, and start focusing on who he is instead of what we're doing. And to allow him to do his work in us. These things do not happen apart from the Holy Spirit. You're not going to have an after, a significant after. What about an after summit? What about... Some of you that went on missions trips to India and Vietnam and Japan, I tell you, you do not come back the same. And it doesn't wear off. There's things that mark you. There's things that brand you. But could, do we have to go somewhere like that for God to mark us, for God to brand us with a new passion, with a, a new endowment? I want the praise team to come back up. And I want, I want us... I want us to ask God to give us a new after, a before and after, being prayed for, being, being prophesied over. There's probably some of you been prophesied over. There's things that God has spoken to you. There's things that God has put in your heart to do, and it, it hasn't even come close to happening. And maybe what Debbie was sharing in her testimony is maybe we've almost started to give up on that. Give up on the after. That God wants to do something significantly in your life. I ask, 
I didn't preach last Sunday, but I was ready to preach this last Sunday and the Sunday before that. But I asked Caroline at, at the coffee board, she said, what you preaching on? I said, I'm not preaching. None of the daughters preaching. I said, but I will ask you a question related to what I'm going to preach. Is it possible to be bored by the Holy Spirit? Is it possible to be bored by the Holy Spirit? Is it possible to be bored in a church service? Oh, man. The lunch line is going to be so long. Come on, dude. Let us go. If we're bored in church, if we're not moved in church, where does the responsibility land? Is it on the shoulders of the Holy Spirit? Is he not here? Or is it we're not here? Our bodies are here. But we are disconnected from him. I want to tell you, it's impossible to be bored by the Holy Spirit. And there's points and we don't really want him to show us what Jesus was trying to tell Peter that's in you, buddy. <laughs> and when the pressure's on, you're going to find out there's something in you that you really wish was not in you. We only want the euphoria of the Holy Spirit. We don't, we don't want the carving of the Holy Spirit. And isn't it interesting that in Galatians chapter 5, it's juxtaposed between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. The challenge of the sarks and the pneuma. It's the works of the flesh as opposed to the fruit of the Spirit. And he says, you can't have both going on. There can't be, you know, fresh water and salt water coming out of the same fountain. They call that brackish water, and it's still nasty to taste. And even if you mix the two, it's not drinkable. And so why is it, you know, we, we kind of are living in, would you agree, we're living in a kind of a sensual society? Do you think, do you realize that word means it's appealing to the senses, the five senses, hear, taste, touch? This is why pornography is, is regrettably present in people who attend church every Sunday. Because they're, they're drawn by the euphoria of the senses instead of the dynamic of the Holy Spirit. First time I ever saw a guy roll up his sleeve and show me track marks of mainlining heroin in the 1980s in Jacksonville. And that guy showed me what he was dealing with. And he said, I've been in all the programs. I've been in, I've been in all the programs. And I've gotten clean, but I keep going back. And I'm not a very good counselor. I'm not a I'm, counseling is not my strength. I will pray with you anytime. But I looked at him and says, because it's not getting off, it's what you're missing getting on. He says, what do you mean? He says, this is a replacement of what Jesus wants to do in your life. And you can't have both. But if you have him, you don't need this anymore. And it wasn't long after that, that guy got totally delivered from here. Straight line in the here. 
not with Teen Challenge, just him on his own, not because I told him anything, but because he realized that was a replacement of Jesus in his life. This is what pornography is. It's replacing what the Spirit desires with something that the flesh desires. And there's a lot too much sensuality in, in, in the church. What we're comfortable with, what we like, what we don't like. We don't like long services. We don't like, we don't like a lot of things. We don't like music. We don't like, it's just like, good grief. I, I'm, I'm really trying not to say what I, I, I want to say because it's probably my flesh that's wanting to say it. I said, I could find out too many things to do on a Sunday than come to church and be miserable. When there's the audience of the Holy Spirit that you get to worship, would you stand with me? I'm just, I want to pray. <laughs> I'm telling you, I'm praying for myself. How's that? I, I will, I'm, I'm at the altar. I'm going to at least get one person at the altar today. <laughs> and I've been talking to her, and she's probably like, what, what is going on with you? But I know, I know the yearning I have for myself. And I just believe there's probably people in this room that want an after, want something to mark them and says, God, I want, I want something beyond what I've ever had. And if that is you, I want you to come and just stand across the front here. I want my after. And we're going to pray. That's the altar call. I'm not going to say it anymore.